0: Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. You know, most often, Christmas sermons come from one of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, or Luke. You know, these stories relate to Mary and Joseph and manger scenes and shepherds. But today we're going to read the unusual birth narrative that comes from John's Gospel. John has a unique way of describing Jesus' birth. He begins his Gospel by talking about the word, that is the word with a capital W. The Greek word is the word logos, and that's um, the word we translate with the word word. Kinda crazy, isn't it? Uh, What does this word with a capital W have to do with the birth of Jesus in a manger? Well, let's read and study together. We're reading uh, John chapter one, verses one through 18. We're gonna focus most of our time though on verses 14 through 8. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this word, literally a word from heaven, the Logos, um, that has come and dwelt with us. Uh, We praise you for your mercy and your kindness towards us. Help us to process more fully um, what this is all about, this incarnation of your son Jesus into this world and into our lives, we pray, amen. The summer residence of the Queen of England is Balmoral Castle in Scotland. When Queen Victoria was there years ago, she sometimes would take walks outside the castle grounds, out there in the public, disguised in old clothing. Her bodyguard, John Brown, followed behind her. Once as she was walking down the road, she came to a flock of sheep driven by a young boy. He shouted at her, keep out of the way, you stupid old woman. The queen smiled but said nothing. A moment later, her bodyguard came up to the boy and said, be quiet. That is the queen. Well, said the boy, she ought to dress like a queen. That's the way it was with Jesus. Look at our text beginning in verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people, did not receive him. But, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John is telling us something cataclysmic, something that is life changing. Jesus, the high king of heaven, God's very son, came into this world and he was recognized by almost nobody on earth and it's no different today each year at christmas the the people of this world continue to reject him not that they don't look forward to christmas time it is kind of a special season after all but for many christmas really is just a holiday season a time to try to capture nostalgic, festive feelings at the end of a long, difficult year. You can know that you approach Christmas with this mentality by whether or not the thought of Christmas somehow instills a sense of pressure on you. You know what I'm talking about, right? The pressure to not let the season get away from you, the pressure to enjoy, the pressure to make sure everyone has the right presence, the, the pressure to experience, experience some sort of peace on earth, at least for a moment. You know what I'm talking about, right? But Christmas is not meant to be a pressure upon us, but instead a light within us. Christmas is about receiving into our very lives the very light and life of Christ, who came so that we would no longer walk in sin and darkness, but in the light of his grace and truth. That's what John is trying to illuminate before us this morning. And so we must all gather here this morning in deep humility. Why? I think most people would like to think that that if they were back there, when Jesus was born, back there, well, they would have gotten Jesus. They would have gotten him right. They would have understood who he was and why he had come. Listen, none of us would have had it figured out. We would all have been in the dark And it's true, right? It seems like the only people who seem to get Jesus right at his birth are those to whom angels have spoken, (laughs) right? See, when the light of life came to shine into this dark world, everyone on earth was in darkness concerning him. John writes that Jesus is the light that has come into a dark world, divine illumination, divine life-inhabiting light, life-giving light has penetrated from heaven into our dark world. So powerful is the light of Jesus that John writes that that darkness in this world could not overcome him. Listen, Jesus did not come to earth because we already had light in us. He came that because unless he comes, we are forever stuck in the dark. You, me. This morning we're gonna let the Apostle John turn up the light in the room, so to speak. You're all familiar with those dimmer switches, right? The ones where you just, they're dark in the room and you slowly slide it up and it becomes brighter and brighter. Well, this morning we're gonna look at this passage uh, with five dimmer settings. We're gonna go from uh, the lowest setting to the brightest setting as John illuminates Jesus this morning. You ready? So, the first setting on the dimmer switch illuminates the reality that God is invisible. Now, this seems like an obvious truth, but um, we read it in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. You know, what fools we make of ourselves by denying God's existence. When I was in my 20s, I totally denied God existed. I was so confident that I was right. But it's true, isn't it, that we believe in many, many things that we cannot see with our eyes. Take, for instance, a pregnant woman. Until about five months, you cannot see that she is pregnant. But she knows, right? Those, (laughs) Those frequent morning visits to the bathroom gives her a big clue. With regards to God, who is invisible, we are foolish to deny that which we cannot see. But that is what many people do. You remember the famous Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin? Remember him? He was before my time. But when he traveled up in space, the first one out in space, in 1961, he boldly said, I don't see any God out here. In our natural state, we live in a spiritual darkness, and therefore we don't have spiritual eyes to see the invisible God. That doesn't mean he doesn't exist. It just means we cannot see him. And so when John says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, he poses a problem. If you cannot see him, how can you know him? So that's the dimmer. Turned up one setting, and we see there that God is invisible. The second setting, as we turn the light up just a little bit more, is that God revealed himself in the law of Moses. That is found in verse 17, but let's read from 16. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now first briefly, what is the law of Moses? The law of Moses, uh, those are the divine laws that God spoke uh, to Moses and gave to humanity through Moses. Now why did God give his people the law? One, because unless God speaks, literally speaks to humans. In words that we can understand, We he will always remain distant and unknowable. We are dependent upon God to reveal himself, right? And two, God gave us his laws because God is a God of love. Children may know that their parents love them, not by the lack of rules, but rather by the presence of household rules, as well as disciplines if the rules are broken it's a sign that your parents love you when that takes place in the house so the law of Moses tells us that God loves his children so we must realize that the law is good now John says something a little bit confusing the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ I mean does this mean that that these are opposed to each other that that the law of Moses is somehow contrary to to grace and truth I don't think so what verse 17 says is that, is that before the embodiment of the reality of grace and truth, which came through Jesus, there was a witness of that reality to come through the law of Moses. Maybe you already know this, but the whole Old Testament, when you read it, it points towards Jesus Christ to come. For example, in John chapter 5, Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here we see the harmony with Jesus in, the, in, in, in this truth that, um, about Jesus and his grace. Moses and Jesus are in harmony. Another example is John 6:32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. This means that that manna in the wilderness uh, during Moses' day was a gracious gift of God, but it was not the true bread that God wishes to feed his people with. It was not the reality of grace itself. It was a witness to the grace to come. And we know this is true because later in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. What a beautiful invitation. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So John's point in verse 17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, is not that the law was the reality, the embodiment of grace and truth, but rather Jesus was. Jesus was the fulfillment, not the contradiction of the law of Moses. Now, that's setting number two. First setting, God is invisible. Second, God revealed himself in the law of Moses before he revealed himself in the Lord Jesus. Our third um, setting is up the flight of of, uh, on that dimmer switch shows us that God became human. Verse 14, we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, to hear the full force of those words, we need to go back to verse 1, where we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, The Word was God, and the Word became flesh. If the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, then what we read here is that God became flesh. God became human. Jesus was human and fully God at the same time. Listen, I cannot stress enough how shocking this statement was in the Apostle John's day. In Greek philosophy, the word logos, which we translate with the word word, uh, logos was a captivating, an elevated word. To the Greeks, logos represented the wisdom behind the universe. When the Greeks looked at the world, they saw order, they saw predictability, and there was a logos with a capital L behind it all. The Greeks also believed that this world we live in was dark, was full of evil, that the human body was corrupted. And so the goal uh, for the Greeks in some sort of afterlife was to shed the human body, to be done with it, to just live in some sort of spiritual reality. The, one's flesh was corrupt. And so try to picture the Greek audience as this was being read to them. They would have nodded their head in agreement. Yes. The Logos is God, yes. The Logos created everything. The Logos is light of divine illumination that the world needs, yes, yes, yes. Calling God the word resonated so well with the Greek readers until, until they arrive at verse 14 and if you were to look around the room there would be a collective jaw-dropping. They would read it again and they would read it again, and they would say, scandalous, scandalous, the logos became flesh. No, never. It would never happen. This must be a mistake. John used the Greek word sarx. Sarx is a, it's a crude word. It means meat or flesh. He could have said that, that the word became a human, or that the Word took on a body, soma. Those are all great words. But it's in unthinkable to the Greek mind. Never in a billion words, years would someone, would someone think that the word became flesh. But that's what John demands we come to reckon with. When you turn up the lights on Christmas, that is what Christmas is all about. Christmas isn't about eggnog or shopping lists or fruitcakes or Ray Conniff on the radio. When John turns up the dimmer switch, the light illuminates that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt here means to, to set up a tent or pitch a tent in the original Greek language. John is telling us that God came down in flesh and pitched a tent on earth. <laughs> The tent being Jesus' body, of course. Now think about it. If you're a king, like a royal king, a real king, and you come into a community and build a huge palace with a wall all around it, kind of like Balmoral Castle, it says one thing about your desires to be with the people. But if you pitch a tent in my backyard, you will probably use my bathroom and you'll probably eat a lot of meals at my table. This is why God became a human being. He came to pitch a tent in our human backyard so that we could have lots of dealings with him. Pitching a tent with us implies that that God wants to be on familiar terms with us. He wants to be close. He wants a lot of interaction. That's the third setting on the dimmer switch. First, God is invisible. Second, God revealed himself in the law of Moses before he revealed himself in the Lord Jesus. And third, God became human and set a tent in our midst. The fourth setting is that in Jesus, we see God and his glory. Again, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice we read, we have seen His glory. Who does the His refer to? It refers to the Word, and the Word became flesh, and the Word was with God, um, and we have seen His glory. So in Jesus, John wants us to understand, in Jesus we behold God in all of His glory. God wants to be seen. Listen, God wants to be seen seen and known through his son. God came to live in a fleshly tent so we can watch him more closely. God wants to be seen and known in his son. The same point is made in verse 8. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The only God at the Father's side is the risen Lord Jesus who is sitting at the Father's side. He has made God known. In Jesus we see God. If you want to know what God is like, look and see Jesus, for he is God in the flesh. That is what John is saying. And he says when we look at Jesus in Scripture, we see God's glory. But it doesn't look like normal glory, does it? What is the glory that John says they saw? Well, it's what he writes of in the rest of the gospel. They saw a carpenter from Nazareth rescue a wedding gone bad by turning water into wine. They saw a religious leader, Nicodemus, who thought he could patronize Jesus and get Jesus to join their tribe. They saw a despised Samaritan woman become the very first one to believe that Jesus is the Christ. They saw him heal a lame, overlooked beggar by the pool of Bethesda. They saw Jesus attacked by the self-righteous religious leaders. They saw him care for a multitude by feeding them all. They saw him weep uh, and then raise Lazarus from the dead. And when John gets to the climax of the story of God's glory, they're all in the upper room, and Jesus talks of his betrayer. He talks of being handed over to the authorities, of being disowned by even his own closest disciples, and then being nailed to the cross and left to die. And in the upper room, Jesus says this, listen closely the hour has come for the Son of Man, that's what he called himself, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When Jesus used the word glorified, he did not mean it in the way the disciples wished it to be. They wished that Jesus would triumph over all these earthly rivals. No, Jesus. when Jesus said glorified, he meant crucified. They define glory as earthly triumph, Jesus defined glory as divine sacrifice. The glory of God that is seen in the light, in life and death of Jesus is just as offensive to humanity as the word becoming flesh. The glory of God in Jesus Christ is the light of Christ that has shone into this dark world, but, but this world does not want to see it or walk in it. It's a humble glory that this world knows little of. It's a humble glory that confronts us, light shining into darkness. And, and this light is full of truth and grace. In a few moments, we're going to sing joy to the world. One of the lines is, He rules the world with truth and grace. Let's parse those words. First, the essence of what God reveals about himself in Jesus is that he is true. God is real. There is no greater true truth than what you see in Jesus Christ. There's no falsehood in Jesus. He lacks nothing. He is full of glory. We're just not used to the glory that he is. We look for earthly glory in him as Beautiful glory, the fullness of God's glory overflows into all that Jesus did and continues to do. Second, God is grace. A simple definition for grace is undeserved merit. If we're honest with ourselves, and we should be, we know that we fall short even of our own standards for how we should live, let alone God's standards. Jesus called our falling short, he called it sin, and he said that he came to die to cleanse us from our sin. That's why he took on flesh. So the message of Christmas is that in Christ, God's grace comes into this world. A grace which redeems and a grace that gives new life. God sent his son, listen, God sent his son to live the life you should have lived and then die the death that you deserve so that in him you may have eternal life. This is great. This is the essence of God's reality. Because nothing reveals the fullness of his deity more than the glory of his grace. And that's the capstone of his glory. We saw his glory, full of grace and truth. That's the dimmer switch up to four First, God is invisible. Second, God reveals himself in the law of Moses before he reveals himself in the Lord Jesus. Third, God became human and pitched a tent among us. And fourth, in Jesus, we see God and his glory, and he's full of grace through. The fifth setting is this. God came to give us grace, but we must receive it. Now, this may come as a real huge surprise to some of you, but I'm a big Jim Carrey fan, right? Maybe, no surprise, okay. Uh, And Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, it's a classic. There's this scene in When Nature Calls, don't shake your head at me, I've only seen it 12 times. There's this scene where Ace Ventura is at the top of this mountain, and he's looking down thousands of steps into the valley, and he takes out a slinky. (laughs) And he starts the slinking. He follows it all the way down the steps. He's all excited. And then it gets to the very last step and it stops. And it drives Ace Ventura crazy. He wants to go all the way back up and do it again. Don't let that happen to you this morning. Don't let the illumination of God's word stop at setting number four. We need John to turn up that light just one little bit more to the highest setting so that the meaning of Christmas can come into your life. It's here that we ask what's the connection between all of this revelation and you? Verse 16 gives the answer. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So with the dimmer switch turned all the way up to the max, we see that God came down not just to show us grace, but to give us grace, and we must receive it. It's like a Christmas present. It's not really yours to unwrap it and take it home. God doesn't just want to shock your head with knowledge about his grace and truth. He wants you to receive it and experience it. This Christmas, he wants to give you personally a foundation of grace and truth so that you may walk in fullness of his love throughout the rest of the days of your life and for all eternity. This Christmas, Jesus and God the Father want to treat you with grace, to forgive all your sins, all of them, to take away all your guilt, to cleanse your conscience, to give you strength for each day, to fill you with hope and joy. Isn't that the meaning of grace? And isn't that why he pitched his tent among us? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. My friends, allow the light of life to illuminate your souls today. Receive the grace of Christ. It's come to be given to you, but you must welcome it into your life and let it fill your heart with everlasting joy, a joy to the world kind of joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that just as physical light shines upon this earth, it is also true, and even more so true, that you sent your son to be light into this dark world. We're thankful that the light of Jesus illuminates everything of internal imp- importance for us. Help us to receive your truth and your grace. We praise you, Jesus, that, that Logos became Sarx for us, so that we might be called children of God, and that is what we are. We thank you in your name, Jesus, amen.